Welcome to Wild Quincy, a podcast that looks into the little-known and forgotten past of Quincy, Illinois. Today, if you want to take a trip somewhere overseas, it's easy. Get on a plane and go. But back in the late 1800s, it certainly wasn't that simple. However, one Quincy man did indeed span the globe in that time period. Find out about Quincy legend George Metz, coming up next. Now, here's your host, Chris Ketters and Travis Hoffman. Another episode of Wild Quincy coming your way in just a few minutes. Travis, uh, we got past the holiday season. Are you doing good? Yeah, yeah, survived Christmas. Uh, I mean, I guess we if you hear this, we survived New Year's as well, <laughs> so that's a good sign. How about yourself? Uh, it went good. It was it was a good holiday. Nothing to complain about. Uh, you know, unfortunately, we missed a week because with the holidays, we were expecting we were going to try getting everything done and just uh, didn't quite work out right for us. So so we had a little bit of a delay. So I hope you guys don't mind that. But uh, we're back for a supersized episode from the sounds of it uh, coming up. And we'll give you the details about that in a few minutes. But uh, last episode was about uh, unexplained. And we talked about Peyton's place. And Travis, we, uh, of course, as always we look for your guys's feedback and and we got some from the last episode right yeah we were curious about how what maybe other people knew about the urban legend story that maybe people that grew up close by and we did get some feedback here matthew b says he grew up in bowen about 30 minutes from warsaw and heard about it but never really thought much about it other than being an urban legend so that was interesting for him to see a little uh maybe there was a little bit of r- truth tied into all the urban legends there uh julie t left us a call on the voice line and said, uh, I've just been listening to your podcast on Peyton's Place, and I have a friend who is from Warsaw, so I gave her a call. And uh, basically, they used to hang out at a place that they thought it was near Warsaw, and she didn't know the story per se or the name, but they go there, and there was there was a place called Peyton's Place, so it did tie in. Uh, I guess they said, yeah, it was out in the middle of nowhere, basically. It seemed really creepy. Never felt comfortable there. Um, just, uh, just a general spooky place. Sarah R. also hit us up said uh, that she worked worked at a DJ's Bar and Grill in Warsaw. I guess her ex-husband had some stories about uh, a couple guys and, and maybe in high school going down to a spooky place. So uh, definitely it's on people's radars. Uh, interesting story here from Chris A. He hit us up on Instagram and said, My friends and I used to go out there. We have a few crazy stories about what we saw. It was at the cemetery and the barn. Both were pretty eerie. Two friends and I went into the woods at the barn and stood back to back, to back, so three back to backs. It was a summer evening in June, and we could see our breath as we stood there. Next time was at the family cemetery. We caught on camera a little boy yelling and a man crouching behind a tombstone. Ooh. Oh, yeah. But unfortunately, he goes on to say, I just wish I knew where that footage was today, as when it was taken, it was back in 2008, 2009. What a story, though, and thanks for covering it. So it was good to hear kind of what you guys had to say. We always appreciate getting some feedback. Apologies if I missed anybody. Just let me know, and uh, we can swing back around next time. Yeah, we always love getting that feedback from from everybody that listens to the episodes. And and I heard one of the names there, Matthew, he's one of our uh, big Patreon fans. And, uh, you know, I heard we got some new ones, evidently. Yeah, quite a few to report since last time. Uh, going in no particular order, we had Nicole Lubbert or Lubert. I don't know exactly the pronunciation. She joined us at the $5 Medium Jeff special. Uh, Colleen Miller Camphouse joined us at the $8 Kelly Salad Bar level. Thank you. Bobby Harrison's back on board. I believe he's a name from the past. He's back 
at the $5 Medium Jeff Special. Welcome back, Bobby. Teresa Thompson joined us at the $8 Kelly Salad Bar level. And Chris Earhart joined us at the $5 Medium Jeff Special. We thank all those people and all our other yeah. Patreon members for supporting us. And we invite everybody else to come check it out as well. Yeah, we, uh, of course, as always, we say this, but uh, we have just as many episodes on Patreon as we do on uh, the regular episodes. And, I, you know, it's funny, we have a, a decent amount of people that are checking out the uh, promotional thing, too, where you can actually uh, trial, do a trial run of it, I believe. Is that still going on right now, Travis? Yeah, we still got that going on. I think uh, it's, what, like a week or a couple, a couple yeah, weeks? Yeah, like five days, yeah, maybe. Five yeah. days free. And, uh, yeah, it's a great way to kind of get a peek behind the curtain, a quick peek. You can't catch everything in that quick amount of time, but we hope you like what you see and uh, join the ranks of the wild things yeah so check that out we'll have a little promo coming up here in just a minute but again as we mentioned supersized episode so we gotta keep the wheels rolling and that means we have to go for the question of the day i chuckle because travis uh trying as hard as he can but he unfortunately has a big uh, goose egg on the win-loss column right you know, now i've done wins. some meditating on it chris i i feel like i'm a, <laughs> i'm at peace with myself and if i never get another question <sighs> right because my record is crap right now so i'm i'm just i'm 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 water i'm water and i'm yeah. flowing into the vessel there and if i miss it oh well and if i get it well i'm, I'm amazing but we'll see <laughs> Well, I, I, you know, before sometimes I say, well, this one's easy. You got this one. This one's hard. I'm not, I, you know, it feels like I'm jinx you either way. You're so not I'm just going to say color it at all. Straight black and white. So I'm just going to say, here's the question. I love it. Uh, there are some big cemeteries in the Quincy area, but which one of them is the biggest? And this is by size. Okay. So we have okay. four choices. We got Calvary Cemetery, Green Mount Cemetery, Quincy Memorial Park or Woodland Cemetery. And by the way, I'll give you some extra credit and we'll try this at the end of the episode if you can put them in order from least to most. Okay. So here's again the question of the day. Uh, big cemeteries. Look, we got some big ones in Quincy, but which one is the biggest according to a size wise and acreage? And are those options are Calvary Cemetery, Greenmount Cemetery, Quincy Memorial Park, and Woodland Cemetery? Travis is getting his pen. I got and nothing. Paper. I got nothing. <laughs> I'm just going to wing it. Going to totally wing it. And, no pens, uh, you can, no paper, nothing. You yeah. can help him wing it uh, at the end of this episode. We'll have the answer for that question coming up at that point. But uh, it is our first people episode of the season. And this one's going to be an interesting one because you've heard the name, but maybe not know the information. And his name's George Metz. We'll talk about him coming up next here on Wild Quincy. <laughs> what you missed on the latest After Hours episode of Wild Quincy. Didn't me and you go see White Man Can't Jump in the movie theater? I think we did. <laughs> I remember seeing it. I think it must have been the We yeah. were like yeah. 12. Yeah, yeah. Was, yeah. Uh, that was our first experience with nudity, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, there was a slight little something. I'm sure my mom was yeah. sitting there and they're like, oh my god, I can't believe did I just Did a parent accompany in. us? Or yeah, did my mom us? went with us. Oh, that's awkward. Yeah, yeah totally. I don't remember that part. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I do because I was I was I had taught my therapist about it for years to come. <laughs> Our after hours episodes are available exclusively for Patreon members by going to patreon.com slash wildquincy. For just a couple dollars a month, not only will you double the amount of Wild Quincy episodes at your fingertips, but you'll also be supporting our efforts as we continue to dive into the wild and crazy history of our favorite town. Also, as a Patreon member, you can take part in our live events and Patreon-only outings, as well as having access to our regular episodes two days before they are released to the public. 
It's easy. Just head to patreon.com slash wildquincy. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash wildquincy and become a wild thing today. So as we start our first people episode of season five, we dig into a a gentleman that I know nothing about. And so I'm eager and interested to learn about the history of this guy and learn about the past. And Travis, you've done a ton of research. Sounds like you did research 10 years ago. Sounds like you did research last month. Uh, So you got a lot to offer to us. So where do we start with the legendary? Do we call him legendary? I I think so. You know, you've seen all those, you know, the commercials for the most interesting person in, in the world right <laughs> yeah this is who it was in quincy back in the, the you know the early 1900s this was george metz in quincy i mean the newspapers wrote about him he was considered kind of a kind of a legend in his own time not only because of his wealth but also the mystery around george and uh we'll get into it we'll get into it here well i'm gonna stop here for just a second i just had a t-shirt idea let's get george metz on a shirt holding a dos equis <laughs> I'm just saying. I like it. I like it. <laughs> we'll see what we can do. There's there's not many floating around of pictures of George, but I got a couple. So, okay. yeah, we'll see what happens here. Good thought. Well, dive in, Travis. Tell us about this interesting name. All right. Well, like you said, Chris, I mean, for most in Quincy, George Metz isn't really a household name, but his unique home built on the bluff, the Villa Catherine, of course, is probably one of the most recognized things in town. Seems like almost everybody's been in there once or twice, maybe, growing up. I know my kids have been in there for school, and actually we just popped in there last week, as a matter of fact, kind of with fresh information in my brain. Uh, While there's a great deal of history and lore surrounding the villa, far less is spoken about the eccentric Quincy who made it his home. So George Metz lived in the Villa Catherine for only 12 years. I don't think a lot of people realize that George was only in that place for 12 years. Um, not, Not long. This was but a fraction of the life of this wealthy world traveler who lived to be in, you know, well into his 80s. In order to better understand his unique building like the villa, I think you know, it's really important that we take a look behind the blueprints and really attempt to get a better understanding of the man himself. So let's go back to the beginning. George Metz was born in Quincy in 1849 to German immigrants William and Anna Catherine Metz. George's father, William, or Wilhelm, first began working in the furniture business here in Quincy and later attained immense wealth as a drugstore, kind of a druggist here in town. There was always lots of uh, ads in the newspaper about the weekly specials, you know, could be toys, could be, you know, household products, all this stuff. So ancestry research shows that George had six siblings, and this is a shock to most people. because, Because nothing is ever really written about them. This is actually one of the mysteries we'll talk about later. Majority of these uh, siblings died at a very young age, and it's very, very suspect. I want to try to learn some more. It's been proved to be quite the uh, the brick wall in doing research. What uh, real quick? Let me ask real yeah. quick. What time frame are we looking at for when the when the brothers and sisters passed well, away? Well, I think uh, four, at least four of them passed away right in the vicinity of 1860, which is later than most of the cholera outbreaks or typhoid mm-hmm. fevers. Because that's, and that's exactly that's where my head was yeah, at. Yep, yeah. yep. Well, we'll talk about it, but uh, yeah. So it's the the jury's out still on exactly what okay. happened there. Okay. Um, most stories and historical accounts don't really mention them at all, which is interesting often calling George the only male heir to his family fortune. This fortune became the source of funding for George's adventurous lifestyle. 
His formative years go widely undocumented in my research, and I, I couldn't figure out why. He wasn't in a lot of the census information, but then I ran across a source that said he spent a lot of time being educated actually in Germany. They still had a lot of family in Germany. It looks like he got most of his schooling there. So for the early part of his life, wasn't really in Quincy much, it looks like. The first real mention of George in the local newspapers or local records was in 1873, and at this point, George is 25, so I mean, that's a huge gap of nothing. So he was 25, and he departed the country to travel through Great Britain, France, and other parts of Europe. So at 25, he's already getting on, getting on the ship, going across the country, checking stuff out, checking out other countries. No stranger to travel from an early age. Sadly, George's father also dies that same year in 1873. Um, I was curious to see if George's inheritance that he got from his father would have been the catalyst for that travel right there in 1873 or if it was after, but the the dates are a little hazy on when his father died. So at, at either rate, his dad passes away in 1873 and basically unloads a lot of wealth to George. So in 1884, and for about the next 10 years, George made his home in Quincy, in a third-floor apartment, in a series of buildings that his father had previously owned, and now George owned. And these were a series of buildings on the north side of Main Street, between 5th and 6th. So kind of where Second String Music was, in that whole block up into the Main Center, most of those uh, buildings on the north side, George was basically the owner. He inherited from his father. So There was an interesting, interesting building... Yeah, I'll have to look into that. There's an interesting building that was in that spot where there's no building at anymore um, on that block. But anyway, we'll get to that yeah, some point. Absolutely. I'll think what that is as we're going along. So George was 25 years old, like I said, when he came into his inheritance. George was a small-statured, quiet, kind man with an excessive bank account. His love, it seemed, was for the water around here. He was immensely proud of his sailboat, which they called the Lady Holland. It was said to be the fastest and finest sailboat between St. Louis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Several years later, he would purchase a yacht called the Henrietta. It's easy to see why George was quickly rising to the top of the Quincy's most eligible bachelor list. This would be an ongoing trend in his life. 1887, George's mother, Anna Catherine Metz, passes away. It was perhaps his love for her and her memory that would be revisited in the, in the future of George's life. So Anna Catherine Metz, that should start ringing some bells for everybody with the name Catherine there. Hmm. That'll be a source of some contention, though, as we move forward here. Now, connoisseurs of gossip in the area were quick to note pretty much every move of George, speaking in hushed tones, as well as the newspapers, and <laughs> speculating over George's actions, questioning if maybe a love interest may be the motive for any specific move. And this was demonstrated in the papers in 1894, when George mysteriously purchased a baby carriage and a lady's cloak from a local auction. auction. Now, many inquired for whom these items were purchased, but uh, Quincy's burgeoning man of mystery kept his lips tightly sealed and would not tell. So everybody was talking. (laughs) George Metz buys a baby carriage. (laughs) As far as we know, nothing came from it. Nobody knows where that landed. So on May 1st, 1896, there was a massive... Did he have a dog yet? No, uh, if he did, it wasn't... No, right now, right now he was a parrot guy. He had a parrot. Okay. We'll, maybe, we'll he needed a, maybe he needed a carriage for you know, his parrot. I don't know. Take it for walks, maybe? He did have He <laughs> did have public... He called them airings, where he'd let the parrot fly around. It was very colorful. It was named Polly. Um, <laughs> so anyways, this is funny, because we keep kind of stepping on uh, 
past stories as we kind of dig into these news stories. You might recognize some of these details, Chris. On May 1st, 1896, a massive fire broke out at 11 p.m. in the block buildings George owned. The Morris Clothing Company, Tank Hardware Store, and Hill Carpet House all occupied the first floors of this large building on the north side of Main Street between 5th and 6th. The second and third floors of the building were apartments, which included George's actual apartment. Fire crews were pretty quick to respond and found George standing at the window of his apartment and was quickly uh, rescued via the ladder. Sadly, many of George's possessions were lost, including his prized 14-year-old parrot, Polly. I know. A bicycle he paid $100 for. That's $3,000 today's money. As well as a new $350 piano. That's around $10,000 today. And uh, this piano was also played by his roommate, who was called Professor Osgood. Don't know too much about that character. George was able to save several suits of clothing, which were placed in uh, the back room of a saloon across the street for safekeeping. Later in the night, however, these apparently thieves ransacked George's suitcases and made off with all these safe suits that were like $60 a piece. Again, keeping with the trend here, that's about $1,600 today, so a pretty significant loss. Yeah. Now, despite this, uh, get your buzzword ready. Conflag- conflagration. Do you remember that word? Conflagration? <laughs> yes. From a fire episode? I believe one of the fires yes. we covered back then was this fire in 1896. Yes, it was. So, uh, bonus points for Travis for using some knowledge from the past there on conflagration, <laughs> the great fire word. Uh, anyways, despite the massive fire, the buildings were salvageable. George was quick to start repairs on the building that included fixing the facades, replacing the roof, as well as adding a kind of a porch area to the whole place. Now, George wasn't down on his luck long. He kind of spent time jumping around various hotels downtown until the Newcomb Hotel opened up. And he actually had multiple rooms there, so it wasn't like he just had one little area. He had a whole, I don't know if it was a floor, but he had a significant amount of rooms, it sounds like, via the, the city directories of the time. And it's it's funny. Uh, in eighteen ninety yeah, let's see, eighteen ninety seven, the local gossip columns fired up again. When George returned home from a trip, he did so in a brand new single buggy car. This is an eighteen ninety seven, pretty big deal. You know, a new car driving down the streets of Quincy. Yeah. And again, I mean, the Quincy the Quincy newspapers this time it was the Quincy da- Daily Journal wrote. And I'm going to try a new thing here, Chris. I'm going to try my old newspaper voice. Here. Oh, okay. I'm excited. So we're, we're going to float this. this and see if this maybe this will stick. So the Quincy Journal wrote, "Look out, girls! George will be asking someone to take a ride." <laughs> so. No one knows exactly who was Everybody in the passenger the seat. Oh, I've got a spe- hey. I got a special highlight color here, Chris. So so you'll hear oh. that again, possibly. Okay, I'm, I'm relatively happy with how it went. Uh, in September 1898, George was 50 years old, so he's already 50 years old. You know. Oh, actually, can, yeah. I, can we stop for a Let's second? Let's go back to the car. Mm-hmm. Uh, was this the first automobile on the streets? No, of Quincy? I don't think it was the first automobile in Quincy. Okay, but at this point, any any car rolling through the streets was a was yeah, pretty. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, pretty interesting development for Quincy. Yeah, that's back in the day. Oh, I mean, that's early definitely. early day. Yeah, yeah for sure. Okay. So, what girls took a ride in that car? It does not say. We don't know. George is always pretty quiet. You'll find out on that front. So, in, excuse me, in September of 1898, George is 50 years old. He packed his bags and headed off on a world tour through Europe and Africa. That would last about a year. He departed from New York and planned to go directly to Italy to see Mount Vesuvius, which happened to be currently erupting. Ooh, as well, cool. I know, right? As well as to explore the buried city of Pompeii. He then intended to travel on to Egypt. 
George would end up traveling to and throughout France, Northern Africa, Italy, Spain, Morocco, and many additional islands and areas around the world. While in Spain, George attended a bullfight. Though George was seemingly a little bit disgusted by the violent sport, he felt compelled to attend due to it being the national pastime of Spain. George went into great detail in a letter back home about the bullfight, and in the September 1st Quincy Morning Wig, he told about the immense amphitheater in which the people hosted, hooted, and howled, just as we would during a baseball game. In one of the fights George attended, a famous torador was gored to death by one of the bulls. The torador's companions picked him up and carried him off the arena, just as an injured baseball player would have been carried off the field. George remarked that it seemed as if it didn't matter who was the victim, the bull or the man, as long as the attendees saw the red gore flow. So it was kind of a rabid fan base over there. I think he was a little mm-hmm. put off by it. George remarked that it seems as if it didn't matter who was the victim, like I said, the, the man or the bull. People wanted to see blood. In France, George got a sneak peek of the buzz and activity as Paris prepared for the 1900 Paris Exposition. Now, this is one of many world fairs that took place back then, kind of showcasing a century's achievements and all the you know interesting things coming down the road on inventions. Now, he didn't have a lot of positive things to say about Paris. Uh, he made no comment about the Eiffel Tower, which would have only been 10 years old at this time. And uh, so we don't know if it still had that new new Eiffel Tower smell or not. We can only make uh, assumptions on that front. <laughs> uh, overall, this trip would prove very instrumental for George, as his travels around the coast of northern Africa and Morocco would first plant the seeds for the vision that would become the Villa Catherine. Buildings he saw, such as the Villa Ben Aben in Morocco, the Alhambra in Granada, and many others provided this inspiration. In March of 1900, George purchased the land from G.A. Bauman, once owned by John Wood, as a matter of fact, that would become the grounds for the Villa Catherine itself. So let's put things in perspective here a little bit. George is at least 50 when he starts building the Villa Catherine. All right. This is right about 1900. So in July, excuse me, in July, George's first dog. That's right. Everybody talks about bingo. Bingo is actually George's second dog. So this is 1900. In July, George's first dog, also a Great Dane, was being boarded at what I have as the Whiskirkin Stable on the north side of Main Street between 2nd and 3rd Street. Now, I guess a fire broke out, and it ended up killing the dog along with multiple prized horses. So this was a horrific situation. George watched helplessly outside this inferno. He was like offering anyone around him $500, which is a pretty good chunk at the time, to anyone that was brave enough to try to rescue the dog. But it was just such an intense fire that anybody would have died who tried to make make a rescue. And so here he is, just sickened outside the horrific, you know, just Mm. hearing these agonizing yelps of this animal, you know, until they subsided. So, I mean, that's pretty rough. And, you know, it's interesting. People like to talk about the dog. Um, It was actually the second dog. In November of the same year, George purchased Bingo, the dog that kind of became known for being George's dog, his second Great Dane. Uh, some reports say he brought it back from from uh, Denmark, but I, I don't have that. I think he actually got it from Nebraska. I think the Great Dane mm-hmm. breed itself was popular being out of Denmark, so he might have been from Denmark, but it looks like George got him out of Omaha. So there's there's always a little he said, she said <laughs> on the bingo front, mm-hmm. on many fronts of George Metz, I've come to find out. So he was rumored to have paid about $500 for the dog, and that's we're talking eight over $18,000 back then. 
And so Bingo, who was iron gray in color, weighed more than about 200 pounds. He could have got up to 250. I guess it was pretty popular. But George wanted to keep him kind of lean and pretty active, so he kept him at 200. And from nose to tail, he was about six foot in length. So this was a big dog, much bigger than his owner. Uh, Many consider Bingo to be one of the finest specimens of Great Dane stock in the land. Um, you know, he wasn't just a companion for George. I mean, George had was in the process of building this wild, you know, villa here on the outskirts, not really the outskirts of Quincy, but kind of in a remote area where he could be susceptible to, you know, vandals and thieves. And so this dog served as kind of a, a, uh, you know, security system as well, Chris. Sure. Um, the construction of the villa proved pretty, pretty an impressive feat for George. Now, the ambitious sketches that George had compiled from his travels mystified many builders around here, and they just weren't familiar with any of the styles he was trying to do and didn't want to take on a risky project like that. So after a a little bit of a battle, he finally landed on a young local architect named George Berensmeyer, who would prove to be the right man for the job and worked with George to help turn the vision into a reality. So through 1900, um, it was actually completed in 1901. So... A, a, a le- the legend, one of the legends of the, the castle is the design was so authentic that several years after its construction, George was surprised to find a couple of moors hiding behind one of the flower beds, kneeling in admiration and devotion. Frightened at George's approach, they both jumped up to their feet. George reassured them they had nothing to fear. The moors exclaimed in broken English that it was so realistic they felt for a moment that they were back home. So... Hmm. Pretty pretty Jeez. impressive feat, and the yeah. it's a wild architecture. Absolutely, very for one, sure. One in a million wow. around here. So, oh yeah, yeah. It's it's surprising to think about um, if anybody would be able to take. You know, you, you look at today's world, and like you know, it, there's there's contractors that build houses, and you're like, uh, you know, I, I we were looking to build one, that, and I was like, I want to put a secret staircase right. in there that goes to a secret right. room, and like some of them were like, you're crazy, and then the, you know, you get that one that's always like, oh yeah, yeah, let's do Likes that. That's challenge, be fun. <laughs> and that that, that was George Metz's guy. I'm guessing. I think you're. Right. I think you know he's young and ambitious. I think. Um, yeah. He probably didn't know enough to be intimidated, I'd say. But right, I, right. I didn't hear of any massive setbacks in, in the construction. One one problem they had was the, they, the main structure there is actually brick, and then it was covered in kind of a stucco, uh, the, oh, the, okay. the appearance. So the material was pretty much local then, right? Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of local cypress trees, I think, made a lot of the beams, if I remember right. Mm. Um Let's see. Yeah, but the problem, they had early problems with the plaster not really adhering to the brick. So even when George lived there, it did. It looked a little rough around the edges in a couple places, apparently. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it was a perfect, the perfect result, but I think it definitely checked the box for what they were shooting for. So mm-hmm. here's an interesting little tidbit that we'll come back and uh, circle back on here later. But on December 23rd, 1900, the Quincy Daily Wig reports that Otto Roth... Mother and sister have leased George Metz's Villa Catherine and have moved in. They have leased the beautiful building, except for the apartments which Mr. Metz has reserved for his own use. Now, we'll get to Otto's mother here in a while, but I think people will pretty find it pretty interesting to hear what her name might have been. You want to guess what that what was, Chris? Uh, <laughs> I could take a guess. I'm going to guess it's going to be Catherine. Ooh, might, let's see if you're right here in a little bit. <laughs> so this is weird because... Everybody says that it was always just George and Bingo who lived in this place. But I've got a few exceptions to that coming up. This is the, a big one, and this is the first one in 1900. This thing isn't even 100% complete yet. And George is just kind of utilizing one room of it. And this, hmm. um, this 
mother and two kids are also living in the place. So interesting. Not gonna, you know, don't draw any assumptions yet. We'll just see. So in 1901, as George was getting settled in the villa, his properties on Main Street between 5th and 6th would again see a large destructive fire breakout. Tank Hardware, Crooks and Cox Millinery, Giles, Giles Brothers Music Dealers, and the Yeast Clothing Company all experienced losses. Again, however, the building was salvaged and repairs were made. However, there were a, a headache a little closer to home was also taking place. As Bingo, he was still a monstrous puppy. You know how puppies can be. They're looking for trouble. And uh, mm-hmm. he found that trouble in the form of one of George's neighbors, George Schlag, who issued a stern warning to Metz by way of the Quincy Daily Herald with a headline that read, Maybe Dead Great Dane. Oh, I'm sorry. Maybe Dead Great Dane. <laughs> Schlag went out to talk to. So Schlag went on. Wait, so wait, 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 wait. So I'm gonna guess. Let me take a guess. What I, I, you know, let's just t- let's just process this for a second. This dog is 200 pounds, yeah, yeah. about the size of a human, yeah. uh, six foot long. Yeah. Uh, this thing um, isn't using a toilet. You th- you think you think this is he using? Is he using a different George's yard? <laughs> is this what it is? Well, where, <laughs> that's a good guess. But unfortunately, it was a little a little different of a situation. Uh, right. Schlag took to the newspapers, and I guess at one point, a fight between uh, a fight broke out under a streetcar between Bingo and one of Schlag's prized bird dogs. So Bingo was roughhousing with oh. some other dogs in the neighborhood. Bingo seemed to overly to just easily overpower this older but smaller dog. Schlag left the scene to retrieve his shotgun in order to oh. ensure Bingo didn't kill his dog. Fortunately for Bingo, George was able to corral him and usher him back to the villa before any bullets took flight. Schlag was no was not happy about this. He told the newspaper that Metz's dog ought to wear a muzzle whenever in public, and further went on to warn Metz if another incident took place, he would not hesitate to shoot the massive Great Dane. Uh, Bingo apparently seemed to fall in line, better behavior as he grew older. That was the only run-in that uh, Bingo made with anybody. All other accounts show that he was a very gentle giant and he loved children and was always Mm. at George's side Mm. everywhere he went. So I'm more curious about what they did with the pickup of the the animal dropping. Yeah, that's <laughs> the 200 pound dog. You know, yeah, that's a lot of that's a lot of excrement, shall we say? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so at any rate, there's a, there's kind of a fun story that happened in 1903 on April 14th. A Paul and Pierre Boisseri, who were two young Frenchmen that happened to be attending the business college here in Quincy, they went with a fellow student to view the Villa Catherine. Upon seeing the sight of Bingo, the Frenchmen threw their hands up and started to run away. The companion uh, <laughs> sought refuge on top of Bingo's doghouse. Uh, hearing the commotion, George came running outside and quickly quieted their fears. And then he was kind enough to, invent, to invite them inside for a viewing of the interior. So he was a very, very uh, <laughs> warm, you know, even, excuse me, invited them in without any uh, hesitation. So uh, interesting character. Um, yeah. Kind of a sad note. In 1903, word reached Quincy that George's 22-year-old niece, who's named Florence Rochelle, had died suddenly while on a trip to Colorado, and it might have been from a heart condition or an accident. So tragedy would kind of be a, a trend in the life of George, even from a young age. Oh, okay. Yeah. So let, let's let's backtrack for a second. I was mm-hmm. always I was kind of under the impression that their his siblings died at a young age. That that sounds like that's not the case. He, he had has a, a, he a had an, well he had another brother named Emil who lived to be twenty. He would have still been alive at this point. 
Actually, okay. I think he died at Twimi. He was probably dead, but he he lived longer than his siblings. But he, George also had a sister that lived to be old. So okay, so th- okay. these were her kids, I believe. So okay, so yeah, gotcha. one unfortunately, I think it was just twenty died on a kind of mysterious circumstances. Mm. Twenty two year olds, yeah. Uh, so yeah, that, again, tragedy would strike again in 1904, just a year later, when another niece, Miss May Dickhut, was killed in the horrible fire that happened in Chicago at the Great Iroquois Theater. I think oh, we've talked wow. about that a little bit in the past. Yeah, so, right. Just a rough trend there. Last couple of years took a big hit on George. Yeah, 1890 to 1920 was not good years for fires. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah, it seems that way. So. In 1904, the Quincy Herald is back out again. They write, they write a column called "The Daily Bachelor Hint." Now, the article talks about George in his beautiful villa, but pause to emphasize that while he's king of the castle, there is no queen, only the massive Don Bingo who keeps George company wherever he goes. Or, in the article's words, here we go. <clears throat> Bingo, who has a jowl like a walrus and weight twice as much as the owner. Whenever you see the man, you see the dog. George thinks he takes the canine out for a walk, but spectators look at it the other way, and that Bingo has George out for a stroll. The article goes on. <laughs> George is as mild and placid and courteous of a person who is graceful self-effacement of the Oriental. Now, this means basically that he kind of didn't let any negative negativity or turmoil kind of get out. It was always kind of hiding behind a smile, so to speak. George has traveled much in tropical lands and in the Algiers or Tripoli and used his travels as inspiration to create the villa in which is filled with fabric and curious things that delight the feminine heart. But few women have entered into the gleaming portals. George owns several business blocks and has an income he cannot begin to spend, but so far has refused to divide it with any girl. Now there he is gray about the temples, the belief is strengthened that would be classed as a confirmed bachelor. Yet George's tender heart hates to give offense. If some shrewd woman were to chloroform his dog and elope with him in Tangier, he would probably put up with it rather than have a fight in the house. So, <laughs> jeez. <laughs> Although George definitely kept to himself, he wasn't a total recluse. On September 30th, 1904, he hosted old family friends Albert Hastings and Pansy Darnell, who were married at the villa, with George doing the honors of playing the wedding march on his pipe organ. So perhaps the ongoing speculation into George's personal life started to take its toll on George, or maybe he, uh, you know, maybe he just hated ducks, Chris. But either way, he was having absolutely none of it in 1905 when George phoned the police to have approximately four to five tame ducks arrested and hauled into prison. That's right. Put in a jail cell. George did this to prove a point that a neighbor, Mrs. Delia Sheridan, had been allowing her ducks and chickens to run to run at large out of George's property, which obviously greatly annoyed him. So on October 20th, a court case was heard in which Mrs. Sheridan pled guilty to the charge and was to be fined $7.25. Doesn't sound like much, but that was $273 back then. Yeah. So she was, she was going to be fined $7.25. Now, I'm not certain if George had a change of heart or not, but the fine ended up being waived for as long as Mrs. Sheridan stayed true to her word that she would no longer let her feathered, frustrating fowls frolic on Metz's property. So apparently she got a fence put up and it wasn't an issue, but it would seem that the ducks 
however, were comfortable during their stay in the jail cell, as one was kind enough to lay an egg, which was seemingly <laughs> confiscated by the jailer. Wait, yeah. did they, they actually put him in jail? Yes, they were absolutely <laughs> in a jail cell, Chris. That's one crazy. laid an egg, um, <laughs> which was uh, confiscated by the jailer and was most likely delicious. Uh, the ducks were released back into Mrs. Sheraton's possession unharmed, and the issue seemed to be over, at least not to make its way back into the newspapers again, until the ducks robbed a bank and killed two duck hunters. <laughs> Just kidding. Not, not really. That would have been something, though. They right. made their narrow duck. So we've got a lot of different sides of George and all these little stories start painting a picture of the man. This is the stuff <laughs> you just don't think about, you know, when right. you're touring the Villa Catherine. Sadly, and you know, we kind of got to get a little sad here. Tragically, um, tragedy struck again on October 30th, 1907. Bingo, George's faithful companion, dies. Bingo had been plagued by a case of pleurse. I wasn't familiar with that. Apparently, it's an infection of or kind of inflammation of the lungs. And despite the best medical attention offered, uh, he just grew steadily worse until he passed away. And the October 31st Quincy Harold Wig wrote that Bingo was eight years old at the time of his death and that his body lay in repose in a custom-made upholstered, excuse me, upholstered casket. It was said that four pallbearers later carried Bingo to the burial site at the highest point on the villa. At one point, there were plans on erecting a monument in his honor. It doesn't appear that that happened, though. I don't, I've never seen any documentation or any real kind of uh, things to back up any monuments that took place. So, hmm. so Bingo's passing led to many kind of friends fearing for George's safety, living alone in this villa without any protection that Bingo offered. But apparently George was confident that he was safe, and he you know, dismissed these fears and went on living in the villa for several years. So... Did uh, let me uh, let yeah. me interject real quick. Did is there any proof today of where that location's at? We will swing back um, around on that because that is okay. yet another mystery that resolves okay. around the castle. Yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of curious about uh, about that. I'm sure there's a lot of mysteries that are still unsolved today when it comes to this. At uh, least three or four we'll kind of hit on here. So, okay. well, the Gossam columns were a little uh, little wanted a little uh, more action. So on January 30th of 1908. The uh, Quincy Daily Journal offered the following articles. Seventeen ladies of the round table went to visit the Villa Catherine. And the ladies of the round table is that kind of a social organization. So the article read, George, who met them at the front door with the remark that he supposed the ladies had come to make a leap year call. He then invited them in and with the assistance of his niece, Mrs. Frank Bishop, who was there to help do the honors, showed the ladies through the residence and told them all about the treasures and that he had gotten in Algiers. Mrs. Bishop received the ladies in the lower court, where graceful palms stood as the sentinels around her, as the sweet fragrance of burning incense filled the air. A handsome Moorish lamp was in the center of the court, attracted by the lady's eyes immediately, and a unique old clock, which boasts a great age of a hundred years old, and inside which there was an organ attachment, which the host set to playing for them, delighting the visitor's artistic eyes. Then there was a strange-looking beautiful hanging lamp, three hundred years old, from which candlesticks branched off. That the ladies coveted, especially these and other treasures Mr. Met showed to the ladies, adding interesting tidbits about his trips to Algiers, all while including the custom habits of the people there, 
The ladies enjoyed the visit for around two hours. No rumors so far have been set afloat. It is presumed that the leap year call of the ladies was simply for art's sake and not for the purpose of asking anything definite of the host matrimonially. <laughs> Whew, gotta take a breath after that one, Chris. That was a long way to go for that one. All right. <laughs> so, uh, interestingly enough, you know, all these uh, these stories about him living alone in the castle, census data from 1910 shows something a little interesting. It shows a 19-year-old Cecil Ott. This guy was originally from Missouri, staying with George at the, the castle. I don't know if this guy was just uh, running out of room or had a family connection. Maybe he was doing some kind of laboring for George, had a lot yeah. of big rose gardens. Not exactly what the story is from Cecil, but it uh, looks like he went, he went on to leave the area later. And I think he ended up serving and possibly dying in World War I. I was trying to find a little more information about him. Unfortunately, not much floating around. So, building up to 1912, plans began to come around uh that there was going to be a railroad trying to be connected, or excuse me, trying to be built to connect Chicago and Alton, Illinois. Now, initially, the railroad plans called for the building of a railroad and a kind of a rail yard in a path that would run directly where the Villa Catherine was at. So representatives of the railroad sought to purchase the Villa Catherine grounds from George, who was opposing most offers at this point, who of anybody curious parties, until one day when a young grocer, Archibald Barons, and his wife, who was an accomplished artist, showed an interest in buying the Villa Catherine. After some talk with the young couple, George kind of saw within them a little flair of the artistic and liked the idea of a young couple carrying on in his castle, and so he agreed to sell. Before the sale was final, though, George discovered that Barons and his wife were actually agents working for the railroad. So, in exchange for getting George to sell, they were promised the interior contents of the villa as their commission. Oh. So, George was saddened, but he realized that if the railroad was that set on taking its property, he was no longer going to stand in their way. So, he went on to leave the villa in 1912. He walked away with almost nothing, just padlocked the door and returned to living at the Hotel Newcomb. Huh. So, it's a kind of a a sad day. He leaves the villa. Uh, thinking it's going to get torn down. But the railroad project ends up falling through. I don't think the ground there on the bluff was suitable for yeah. the need. And it doesn't really make sense. Yeah, it's, it seemed like a weird concept from the, the you know day one, honestly. So... The, was it was it was it going to be one of those things where the hill was going to be like a slingshot and it was just going to get them all the way down to Alton? You know, I don't know. <laughs> I never saw the plans, but I don't know if they built it in another place or not. Um, not mm. really sure where that landed. To be honest, seems kind of weird. Yeah, so like I said, it ended up falling through, and the villa was just left to wither away on the bluff. Metz later found out that the young couple only ever received a single rug as their reward. George believed later in life that a local representative of the railroad, a John J. Fisher, most likely ended up with the furnishings of the villa, and he probably used them to as gifts or to furnish homes with the Islamic decorative collection. Uh, hmm. The villa property fell under, I guess, 18 years of legal litigations before it goes kind of rented out and various alterations were done, taking away some of the aesthetic properties of the design and people trying to find a modern purpose for this building. It was so unusual. So it was definitely kind of a painful shadow of, uh, of his one's beauty. And, you know, if most most people, that's kind of the end of George Metz. You know, a lot of people think, he sells the castle, moves into a hotel or a r- apartment, and then dies. But not so much, Chris. There's a whole mm. 
world of adventures that are awaiting George at this point. The chapter of the villa is closed. He walks away. He kind of just blights it from his memory. He's he doesn't have any mirrors pointing backwards. He's only looking forward so much. Yeah, so so what year is the is chapter three here? Nineteen twelve. That's when that's yeah. That's when the castle is stolen. Uh, stolen. Sold. I don't know what word that <laughs> was. And so nineteen twelve. Stolen. 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 <laughs> sold. Stolen slash sold. Kind of tricked into yeah. selling it. Um, he walks away. So nineteen twelve. It's kind of a year. Did you just purging. make a word? Did you you just made a word? Which word? Stolen. What did you Stol- say? What stolen, was again? Stolen. 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 I think you just made a word. We'll, we'll listen we back to it and try and trademark that. Yeah. <laughs> very very t-shirt worthy. It's when a, it's when a building is sold, but it is also stolen kind of in the process. Swindled and sold. Swold. Yeah. Swold. Stolen. Swindled. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, all right. Nineteen twelve is where we're at. So he's he's kind of doing some purging here. The higher, excuse me, the highly desired commercial property we talked about on North Main between fifth and sixth is sold off, and now George is sixty five, and most people are winding down at age sixty five. And a lot of times, <laughs> not not George Metz, my friend. George had other plans. I think he doubled down, had the wanderlust, and decided, you know what, I'm going to spend whatever time I have left, just going everywhere. So. Hmm. The July 13, 1913, Quincy Daily Journal reports that George has arrived back into Quincy after spending winter in California visiting family and friends. George's bags don't stay unpacked for long, though, for in uh, May of 1914, George heads across the ocean for a summer tour of Norway, Sweden, and Russia. While on his trip, World War I breaks out. So uh, George continues his trip across what has now become a war zone. He appears to stay far from the front lines and, and has postcards coming in from you know to friends here in Quincy. And I guess around August they get here and it indicate that he is greatly enjoying his travels throughout Stockholm and Denmark, calling it one of the most beautiful places he's ever visited. He then planned to, to go to a place in Russia near the German frontier to visit relatives who owned a large ranch. Then he was to travel back through France, getting to the States in the end of 1914. His trip ended. Excuse me. His trip ended up being cut a bit short, you know, due to a fact that the whole continent is under war. <laughs> and uh, in fact, finding passage back to get home was tough. a tough go. He was stuck in Copenhagen, Denmark, for about four weeks until he was finally able able to gain passage on the SS Frederick the Eighth back to New York. And this wasn't just a normal trip back from uh, from Europe. He actually had to go extremely far north because of all the war zone and in the waterways. So he went as far north as to actually go by Iceland. So a Hmm. super far northern route got him back to New York. And, uh, you know, I think he was finally back back in Hotel Newcomb by 1914, which was a month sooner than he had planned. So he's got the travel bug. He's... He's gone to Europe in the breakout of World War One. Still traveled through Europe, comes back, and so he kind of decides maybe I should hang hang low. There is a world war going on, <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of quiet between 1915 and 1916. But the wanderlust got the better of him. He left Quincy again in 1917 to spend the remainder of winter in Havana, Cuba. And by the end of the year, he was settled comfortably in Havana, having a delightful time enjoying 74 degree weather. Upon returning home from Cuba in June of 1917, George presented to Cheerful Home in Quincy. He presented them with an antique door knocker in the form of the Hand of Allah, 
which he had secured in Cuba during his winter stay. So an interesting gift. I don't know if it was asked for, yeah. but they received it nonetheless. Uh, I, I'm kind of curious to how that was received. Like, thanks for the hand of yeah. Allah, George. <laughs> yeah, this is so, great, man. We'll just, this is exactly uh, put it in the back room, maybe, and figure yeah, out a good like, spot for it. That's exactly what our front door needed. Or maybe, was this door maybe it was just an honor to receive something from the world. Yeah, maybe. The world-famous George Metz here. So Yeah. George seemed to enjoy himself a lot in Havana, and he went back the next year to escape the cold again. And, you know, kind of really wanted to get out of the areas in the winters, both in 1918 and 1919. So the 1918 visit found Cuba going through a shortage of flour, and I guess there was, like, no bread on the entire island and very little Hmm. meat and hardly any tourists. So so it was kind of a bad experience (laughs) that 1918. Hmm. He was doing kind of definitely a a low-carb diet down there, it sounds like. Early at <laughs> when is that when you do the low carb? Is that Atkins? Is that is that uh, Atkins? Yeah, I, I think know. so. Yeah, or so. Keto, I keto. Know. Yeah, there you go. Maybe doing the keto lifestyle. It sounds like. Yeah. Uh, anyways, I guess returning in, in uh, 1919, it was just like the nastiest, humid, nasty summer that it can be here in Quincy. And somebody saw him sitting out on the front uh, bench in the hotel Newcomb, and they said. Hey, did you ever get weather like this down in Cuba? And uh, George replied, No, from all the information I can gather, the only place that has weather like this is the place where the Kaiser is booked for. Now, that doesn't mean a lot today, but back then that would have been just like a killer joke, right? Because he's talking about the <laughs> Kaiser saying the Kaiser's going to hell, the Kaiser being the chief villain in World War One. So, I mean, that would have that would have killed in 1918, Chris. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> kind of had to translate a little bit today. So. That's right, exactly. So seemingly it could be a funny guy, old George Metz. Yeah. Now, this is a kind of an odd little fun story that happened in 1919 that I just enjoyed and wanted to share. That's called George's Green Hat. And uh, starts like this: George was, excuse me, George was enjoying his lunch at the YMC, or the YWCA cafeteria. When getting ready to leave, he was surprised to see that his new green velour hat was missing from the hat rack where he'd placed it upon entering. George noticed a similar hat there when he came in. He inquired to the ladies at the front counter if they might know anything about it. They all decided it was probably a misunderstanding rather than an act of theft. George, per usual, displayed his utmost faith in humanity and made up his mind to patiently wait for the man who he suspected had mistakenly took the wrong hat to return and correct his mistake. George waited outside, looking upon Washington Park, where he often observed the squirrels and birds, offering crumbs and various leftovers to them. But not the damn ducks. The damn dirty ducks could figure out their own lunch. That was my own editorial there, but I just kind of thought, those ducks better not get that squirrel and bird food. Damn ducks. He'd be, he'd be waving his ivory-headed cane at those ducks. Anyways, <clears throat> George would occasionally glance in... Get off my lawn, ducks! <laughs> Go duck off! Um, George would occasionally <laughs> glance in at the hat rack before uh, before returning to the squirrels and the birds, but not the ducks. He glanced over, and at one time, he, he com- with a combined sense of mystery and relief, he saw a man enter the, with George's hat, taking it off and replacing it on the rack with his own hat, correcting his earlier mistake. George then retrieved his hat after the mistake and and seemingly broke even with the universe that day. So hmm. the mystery of the green hat, a lot of faith in humanity that uh, sure enough was, uh, was good. resolved in. So hmm. 1921, he didn't go to Cuba, he was going through economic tur- turmoil. So he set his eyes on a place you've enjoyed in your own past, Chris, that being Hawaii. 
So, oh, nice. So, yeah, he decided instead to spend the winter in the Hawaiian Islands. George's trip had him departing from Baltimore, Maryland, on the SS Hawkeye State. And you're Oof. you're probably thinking, why would you leave from Maryland? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll tell you why. George is an adventurer, Chris. He's not just going to take the path of least resistance. He wants to go through the Panama Canal. Huh. So the passage took him through the Panama Canal, and then he had a brief stop in Los Angeles again to visit family and friends. Technically, that's probably the faster. You know, route it might have been honestly. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, today it seems weird, but at the time it might have been your best it's, bet. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't realize the Panama Canal was already in place by yeah. then. So yeah, I mean, honestly, you you probably would have gone faster than going all the way across the country to California and then getting on a boat over to Hawaii. That's a Excellent point. Yeah. Might be the case. Yeah. At any rate, either way, he made it there to the Hawaiian Islands. And, uh, you know, this this wasn't a state yet. Obviously, you know, Hawaii didn't become a state till 1959. So this was still, I guess, a territory or... Uh, no, it wasn't even that. I think yeah. at this point, I still think it was actually the Hawaiian Islands. Right. It wasn't right. anything. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, definitely an early, early adventure over in the Hawaiian Islands. Now, George enjoyed his winter in Hawaii so much that... He just like spent the next two years there. <laughs> nice. Was enjoying himself. He would explore and take all the sights Respect. and sounds and uh, kept a headquarters in Honolulu. So nice. Perhaps George was growing more and more restless in age because he at this time in 1924 he's already 76, and George was able to actually extend his passport while in Hawaii, which was an interesting feat. I actually ran across the document on Ancestry, and uh, it has several modifications that had to be made to the actual paper due to the fact that you know George is in a non-U.S. You know, state yeah. extending his passport, so they had to cross out the state line, and they just put Hawaii handwritten on in its place. Huh. And the Department of State field was crossed out, and the uh, acting governor of Hawaii was written in <laughs> instead. So, <laughs> so yeah, it was an interesting little uh, little tidbit of history there. So he's he's got the wanderlust, Chris, again. So he departs Hawaii February 11th on another world tour that has stops in Japan, China. India, Jerusalem, the Suez Canal, Sicily, Italy, and France. This wow. tri- yeah, it was a definitely a big a big trip. This trip would last five months in total until May 9th. George actually sailed out of Normandy, France, on the SS Scythia, and route to New York. So he's finally back in Quincy after a couple of years and a five month tour of the world, and he's uh, taken up residence at the Haas Hotel, which was at 218 Oak Street. And the Quincy Daily Herald wrote that George was browned by exposure uh, to this wind and sun. So he definitely was looking pretty was good. Tan. Yeah, he was tan. He was healthy. He said, I had great health every single day while abroad. So, I mean, George is doing well and you know, going into older age here. By 1925, George was traveling once again, this time to South America. So he goes to South America. He goes through Argentina, Uruguay, Brazil. He wrote to friends in Quincy about his travels in Brazil and described the Rio de Janeiro as quite beautiful, praising their lovely sidewalks and vistas. He did not care much for the food, saying he was in no danger of overeating, and noted Mm. how few cars and trucks there were. And uh, they had an excellent railway system he had a lot to say about. He also uh, put in, quote-unquote, for the benefit of the local ladies, he gave a thorough rundown of all the women's and men's fashions in Brazil so that Quincy could have their finger on the pulse of worldly fashions. 
Uh, during a stay in Rio, the U.S. warship Utah was actually docked in the harbor there. A multitude of U.S. sailors could be seen all around the Rio streets and points of interest, including a trip George took up a cable car system onto the Sugarloaf Mountain, where the views are seemingly to, uh, seem to be the grandest in the world, according to George. So, sadly, the, the warship Utah, which was docked there um, just 20 years later, would uh, fall victim to two Japanese torpedoes, and it uh, continues to lay in a watery grave at the bottom of Pearl Harbor as we speak. Wow. So, yeah. Which one was that? Uh, the USS uh, Utah. Utah. Yeah, wow. Worship. Cool. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, and hey, I want to go back real quick. Yeah. I feel I, I messed up. You were right. Uh, Hawaii was a territory from 1900 to 1959. Okay. So it was a United States territory during that time period. So I didn't, I, I, I thought it felt like it was, we were close to it not being, but uh, yeah, it was still a territory for like, yeah, I mean, years, I guess so. when the U.S. kind of took it over really from their own, yeah, it was a pretty bad situation, sounds yeah. like. Yeah, so. exactly. It's just like, oh, it's ours now. Yeah, I yeah. think that had happened recently and, the U.S. was trying to get people over there to kind of grow commerce and stuff. So yeah. I think that's probably why George probably had a pamphlet on it or something. <laughs> After leaving South America, he visits Cuba once again for a brief stay before heading home via the port of New Orleans on the U.S. Atlantida. That's a tough name to pronounce. Atlantida. 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 Okay. <laughs> okay. Sorry. <laughs> I kept thinking I had a typo there. I wanted to say Atlantica, but it wasn't. So. Less, okay. not, not important, but anyways, accurate. Less than a year later, George had embarked on yet another trip to Germany. He's still going. He is still going. On this trip, George had somewhat of a side mission from a local Quincyan named Christian Meyer. Christian had a distant relative in Germany who was a world-famous sculptor named Christian Daniel Rausch. George brought back home with him a steel engraving done by Mr. Rausch and some enlarged photographs of his more famous works, as well as an illustrated book covering his life and works. George thought that these works would be of great interest not just to Christian Meyer, but to all Quincians. Whether it was the intention of George or not, this would prove to be his last epic journey, sadly. So, the early 1930s roll around, and it kind of serves as a time of reflection for George. He's back in the area, and in 1932, a reporter from the Decatur Daily Review visits Quincy and spends some time with the now 84-year-old George Metz. The resulting article spent a great deal of time speaking of George's time at the villa and even included a walk around at the abandoned property. Hmm. Now, George shared a secret with the reporter. He recalled one evening when he opened the door to the villa, expecting to see some friends he invited over. But instead, he found some bandits, most likely masked, with revolvers pointing at George's head. Hmm. The bandits demanded George's money and jewelry. While he was doing, while doing so, the bandits, I guess something they did clued George into their identity. So after the robbery, George went to the police and shared the identity of one of the two bandits. George's property was quickly recovered, and surprisingly, George allowed the bandits to go unpunished. <laughs> so he, he does not press charges, just, you know, no harm, no foul, I guess, for he got his stuff back. <laughs> while walking the grounds the, uh, for the first time in many years with a reporter, it seemed that the flood of emotions from his time at the villa came rushing back at George, who it seems had done his best to just blot out the memories from his mind until this very moment. Perhaps it was the decay of the abandoned home, or perhaps it was the reminder of the unattainable past, but George uttered to the reporter, I wish this place were mine again. I'd tear it down. Huh. So in January 1933, George suffered several strokes, the first one limited his mobility and movement, and the second one put him in a pretty critical condition. And through July, George was a patient at Blessing Hospital and was seemingly kind of on the upswing as he was relocated to St. Vincent Home. 
So while George was unable to travel now, he was left with a lifetime of memories and stories to share with those around him. One opportunity presented itself in 1936 when the the YMCA this time held a fundraising benefit for the Empire Theater. They screened the movie called Bimbo, which was a play on the Bimbo Islands. The Quincy Herald Whig helped promote the event, and as George had visited these islands in his travels, he provided some descriptions of the island to the newspaper, all about the South Seas, recalling just an inspired description of the beautiful landscapes. It seemed though his ability to physically go to these places, you know, were limited, but his recollections had just these wonderful descriptive, you know, visual journeys of his time from around the world. So at around 11.40 p.m. on June 17, 1937, William George Metz, age 88, passed away in St. Vincent home. He'd only been seriously ill for the previous week. Uh, it was likely a battle with pneumonia that kind of ended up being you know, his cause of death. When he died, his close of relatives really were just a niece and nephew who both lived in Southern California. Um, he lived a full life, you know, and without any children, it seems like he chose to dedicate his life to traveling the world. Though George saw more of this world than most, and sometimes uh, his journeys would last, you know, years, but no matter what, he always returned home to Quincy. It seemed, uh, you know, it seemed to be the center of the world in which he navigated so frequently. Uh, you know, he, he, uh, he lies peacefully today in Woodland Cemetery between a very ordinary and humble stone. You know, standing in his grave, you have a clear southern view of the Mississippi River, where George Shirley spent many days in his youth sailing, then turning to the northeast on a crisp fall day when the leaves have fallen. You can catch a glimpse between the branches of the villa, standing proudly, you know, the same old star with now a bright new shine. George, even during his life, was considered a man of mystery, Quincy's most eligible bachelor, king of the castle with no queen. He may have been small in stature, but if you look closely at a few photos of him, you can just make out a little twinkle in his eye that must have shined pretty brightly when he got to talking about one of his endless stories from a lifetime of travel and, uh, you know, still managed to keep to himself for the most part. So, uh, you know, his, uh, his name is usually just a footnote when it comes to the Villa Catherine. And, you know, don't get me wrong, the story of the Villa is a great story. I can't even begin to talk about all the incredible work that volunteers and the Friends of the Castle organization did to actually bring that thing back from you know, being demolished, basically. And it's amazing. Go check it out if you haven't. But, you know, if you do go check it out, take a little more time, you know, cross the street, travel to Woodland Cemetery, and pay your respects to George Metz, you know, the king of the castle. So that's George Metz, Chris. What do you think? It's a lot. Uh, there's a lot of things in my mind that rumbling around. But, uh, yeah, just to know how much of a world traveler he actually was. And, and really, I mean, you know, and I guess in today's world, there's probably people that live in, in the area that are the same as him and probably do a lot of traveling. But, you know, back then, that was such a huge thing that, you know, this guy was going to all these exotic places and then got reported on in the newspapers. And you don't see that happen today, of course. No, but, no. you know, back then it, it gave the the people because it's a lot easier. And you, you kind of prefaced it just a minute ago. It's a lot easier for us today. Like I could just jump on a plane and go to Hawaii now. Right. Yeah. Um, where 
you know, 100 years ago, 120 years ago, not not so easy to do. A lot do. more logistics. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. exactly. So so to give that uh, glimpse of what the world looked like uh, to the people back in Quincy, it's, that's pretty cool. I, I mean, that you, you can say that he was a world traveler and you can say all this stuff, but in all honesty, he was... Uh, you know, another thing maybe you don't think about is that he's just the person that uh, kind of gave Quincy a little bit of something they needed, you know, give him a little bit of a world experience. A window into the world. Yeah, kind of, yeah, kind of through yeah, his yeah exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Well, that, you know, I, I prefaced a few items and I want to circle back yeah. around here. We need to talk about some rumors. And okay. although rumors exist today, um, there were urban legends about the Villa Catherine even during George's lifetime. Um, you know, many stories were told about the Villa Catherine. George Metz even recalled later in life in some newspaper interviews that uh, he, he said they were some that were just too grotesque to repeat. There was one in um, one tale that said the door of the Villa Catherine, much like Dante's Inferno, should have borne the legend, abandon hope all ye who enter here. Metz went on to say that some people told stories that anyone who entered the front door of the villa would never leave but ended up in a cellar full of bones. <laughs> so <laughs> Metz was also very aware of all the claims that the castle was built for some kind of jilted lover whom he met in his travels, but uh, fate would not allow them to be together. And he would he would say multiple times in, in several newspaper articles that he expelled those rumors and confirmed that it was built uh, for the namesake of his mother, um, whose middle name was Catherine, and that his life in the villa was in the same atmosphere of purity that a mother might create. So according to George, it was named for his mother and not some jilted lover who uh, maybe he saw in Germany. That's the big story. He had a... It was like a stat. It was kind of a little little stone hand of a, a looked like a woman's hand with a wedding ring, releasing a dove that used to be on the facade of the villa. And I think that was really more kind of a traditional Islamic, um, you know, meaning. Maybe the hand of Allah or something. But uh, they, everybody liked to talk that that was actually a cast of his his jilted lover's hand. So oh, lots of stories there. Um, and the, the namesake itself, I mean, that that's the big mystery. The funny thing that we I, I used to look at and think there was some stock there was, you know how the newspapers are, Chris? They don't always get the details right. And sp- the spellings of people's names, a lot of newspapers spelled his mother's name with a C instead of a K. So mm-hmm. that kind yeah. of led to the whole controversy. Well, his mother's name started with a C and not a K. Well, <laughs> on her gravestone, it's a K, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that they wouldn't mess that one up. So... Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I think it was probably his mother, um, but we'll, we we do have some interesting information to explore here in a minute. Well, hold on a second. Uh, how, what is the current spelling of the Villa Catherine today? It's K A T H E R I N E. So it is with a K. Okay. All right. And so what's our what's our? You mentioned another Catherine though. Yeah. Well, we'll let's get to that right now. We'll circle back on bingo. But uh, you know, sh- this is a big shout out to Wendy Warren. Wendy is a Patreon member as well as a listener and friend of the show. And she uh, used to be part of a paranormal research investigation team called the Rivertown Paranormal Society. They researched uh, and investigated the villa in March 13, 2009, and they did a lot of digging and, and records and stuff. And uh, I got to give a big shout out here to both Wendy Warren and also Deb McLean, who was part of the group. Deb's unfortunately no longer with us. But they did some really interesting research. And they kept on sinking their teeth into a possible person that was of interest to this whole situation, Chris. Sure. Uh, you'll remember that there was a, a gentleman, his mother and sister, who moved into the castle in 1900. 
right. will ask you what her name was. And it was Ka- Catherine. Sure enough. Yeah. Sure enough. This this woman's name was Catherine Roth. And you know, Wendy and, and the team thought that was interesting. So they did a lot of digging just to see, well, let's find out what we can about her. Can we draw any comparisons to the two? Um you know, it's 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 a weird situation, but they, they found some interesting information. I'm just gonna kinda kinda highlight a couple things here to sure. kinda plant a few seeds of speculation and interest, maybe. Okay. So in eighteen eighty four, uh city directories show that George Metz lived at five fourteen Main Street. Okay. Now, also in eighteen eighty four, the directory shows that this Catherine Roth, she was married at the time to a gentleman who went by AF Roth. I believe he was also a a sheriff, maybe, and um, their residence was at 509 Main Street. Okay, so George Metz is living at 514 Main Street. They're living at 509 Main Street, Chris. This is essentially across the street from each other. Mm, so okay. there's a high chance of likelihood that the two would cross paths. Sure. Okay. So this, this nothing here is of any proof of anything. It's only information that could fit a narrative here if you were to manipulate it in a certain way. So we continue to kind of proceed through the timeline here. And in in 1899, uh, this is when Metz is uh, purchasing property at at, uh, 529 South 2nd, which would be the villa itself. So this is 1899. Mm -hmm. Well, in 1899, Catherine Roth's husband dies. Mm. Okay. So the next thing you have is 1900. The directory shows that George Metz is uh, is in his room at the Newcomb. This is right before he moved into the, the Hotel Newcomb. So, I mean, this is only a block towards the river, the Hotel Newcomb, right now. Mm-hmm. It shows that uh, Catherine and her son, Otto, reside at 530 Hampshire, which is only a couple blocks away. It'd be about... Uh, It'll be about a block. It could be kind of by where WGEM is, a bit of, like a mm-hmm. block north of there. So, in this whole time in Quincy, they're within about three blocks the entire time. And while they're living at five thirty uh, Hampshire, their uh, her son actually owns the bar at Fifth and Main, which is right in that same area too. So mm-hmm. this was a central area for them. I can definitely see them crossing paths, shall we say? Sure. So in 1900, as I reported, Otto Roth and mother Catherine, uh, as well as the sister, leased George Metz's Villa Catherine. So here we have George welcoming in this woman and her two older children to live with him at the villa. And, you know, I don't know what that says, but that's interesting. It's in the papers not once. At first I thought, well, that's weird that he would lease the Villa Catherine in 1900, I mean, it's not even done yet until 1901. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe they meant he leased some rooms to them in the Newcomb. But yeah. you know, so I'm like, well, that's you know, maybe that was an, a missed typo or something, or they got it wrong. But in uh, 1901, that fact that they're still in the Villa Catherine uh, is kind of reiterated through history. So let's start again here. 1900, Otto Roth and, and Mother Catherine, as well as a sister, move into the Villa Catherine, where George is also. Stay, you know, they take up most of the area except for one room, which he kind of uses for his own. Mm-hmm. So in 1901, her son, Otto, who was living at the villa, he gets married to this woman named Helen Campbell. They're married, and I believe that they move out at that point. But Catherine remains. For in 1901, 
Catherine creates a scene, and we're going to talk about this scene that she creates on Patreon because it's insane of a story. We'll we'll get to the details in Patreon, but it, it involves poison. Um, oh jeez! And after the resulting incident, uh, she leaves to go back home where she lives, which is listed as the Villa Catherine. So even in uh, up until 1906. Uh, is is when the city directory shows her moving in a different location, living at 122 South 8th. So from 1906, from 1900 to 1906, she is apparently living in the Villa Catherine. Okay. So that's interesting because there's no talks of these women from the round table coming by to visit or anything during all this time, 1900 through 1906. Hmm. I mean, it could just be, you know, as you mentioned, that they've known each other for a long time and, Mm-hmm. And he was yeah, just absolutely. trying to be helpful and, and knew the situation. Maybe was maybe was friends with the husband that passed away and wanted 100%. to help her out. And yeah, so okay, it, yeah, so. I'm not I'm not saying that this is necessarily a love interest, but this is very interesting nonetheless. Sure. So sure. here's here's where spelled with a K or spelled, spelled with, with a, a C. Spelled with a K. Okay. Spelled the same way as it is named. It's the same okay. as her, his uh, mother. Which isn't it weird that he? You know, let's just let's talk for a second here. If you're going to okay. name something after your mother. You can name it after a first name or middle name, Chris. Oh, a first name. Yeah, that's what I thought too. It's yeah. not the villa. But it's maybe not the, maybe she may. But here's the thing: do, do we know what she? We went don't. By? We don't. You're right. Maybe she went by her her uh, yeah. Catherine name. But yeah. Uh, yeah. technically, Anna was her first name. So yeah, maybe she went by Catherine. Could be. This yeah. is the frustrating thing about these items, Chris. Is it's just yeah. lost to history. Sure. So anyways, what, what's very interesting here is 1906 is allegedly when Catherine moves out based on the city directories. 1907, Bingo dies too. So if if this was, and this is all hypothetical, if this was a love interest, you know, whether this crazy outburst this woman had in 1901 kind of made George go, I don't know if I want this lady living here anymore <laughs> or not, mm-hmm. but she's out in 1906. Bingo dies in 1907. At 1908, this is when George invites the the ladies of the round table in, and they'd never been in there before. So this woman's gone before anybody comes into the the villa, as visitor-wise. So in 1912, Catherine Roth dies while going under an operation. And uh, in the same year, Chris, 1912, George Metz finally decides to sell the villa. Hmm. So she dies on 327. And he sells the villa on 6-8. So hmm. you could create a narrative here. It's interesting. You could create a narrative that if this Catherine had something to do with the relationship with George, he never talked about maybe there was some kind of fling going on while her husband was still alive. You know, this is all hypothetical. We don't know this. Sure. Well, or, yeah. or even the fact that it has nothing to do with what happened before. Yeah. It could be that, you know, he passed away and they ended up becoming something more than just friends or that something could be. like that. You know? That could be. It, it might not even be something more than that. Yeah. Totally. And so it's it's just a weird timing that she dies and three months later he, he sells the villa and pretty much leaves it and never looks back. So yeah. it's, it's an I mean, especially moment. Yeah. And that thing in general is kind of weird because, you know, it seemed like he was just very in love with that building in that house and, and, you know, put all this work into it, made it the way it was. And then he just like shut the doors and didn't even care that he didn't make money off of it, didn't care about anything. He just said, lock the doors, be done with it. I mean, it is kind of weird, right? Oh, it's totally weird. Yeah. I mean, you got to think that 
he, maybe like there's something had, more to it. He had so much money that he just didn't. You know, this was just a phase of his life. It almost felt like. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Don't worry about the money though. I mean, just the thought of you lived in this place. Yeah, and you, you, you spent, wanted to build this this huge. You know, he spent you two know, years in his travels, like just getting the stuff to furnish it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so obviously he definitely had a passion and desire for that place, but then just to be like, to walk eh, away. I'm done. It makes you feel like there was more to it. Than like just, so, something, something yeah. died as well as you know in him when the. Yeah, you know, and I don't know what that well, was. So I mean, between Bingo and yeah, and this was her, an actual maybe, interest. Yeah, and maybe maybe not even that much. Maybe they were just super close friends. Absolutely, and, and you know, it just he had too much heartbreak in that building. He was just done with it. Yeah, there were shadows, you know? shadows in the corners of the building. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about the big mystery here, which is the legend of Bingo's grave. Okay. Yeah, this comes up a lot. You'll always hear this story if you go to the Villa Catherine. And the, you know, after he dies, his legend just continues to grow. Um, Still does today. Too, oh, hundred percent. Yeah, I believe this article uh, was. This was from an article in, gosh, I think in the last twenty years, kind of hmm. revisiting the idea of it. And uh, after Bingo died, his legend just continued to grow. I guess one often repeated story is that Bingo is is buried somewhere on the grounds with a diamond studded collar. Mm. And this story has allegedly triggered a lot of late night searches back in the day of the Villa grounds by shovel wielding individuals seeking the fortune here. Uh, interesting. Trudy Rollins, which at the time of this article was president of the Friends of the Castle, is one who really doubts this tale. She said that uh, although Metz is, was an eccentric person, he wasn't stupid. Um, Glenda Oberling, a volunteer with the tourist information office at the time of this article, was also skeptical, but said it. it's a fun story that it's often repeated to visitors. Uh, Robert Christie has heard all the stories. He directed the villa's restoration for more than 20 years. And again, at the time of this story, uh, he knows the building perhaps better than anyone. He's convinced that most of the legends about Bingo are far-fetched, questioning his, you know, he, he even questions the claims that Bingo was the largest dog and, like, the most perfectly proportioned dog. The newspapers were full of hype, you know, hyperbole, yeah. obviously. So a lot of skepticisms there. So, you know, where exactly was Bingo buried? Many stories point to the Rose Garden at the villa. But the thing is, that whole place was surrounded by gardens, kind of when George yeah. was there. There's a little garden today, but it was way more robust then. Um, you know, but every, everybody has a different idea on exactly where in the garden he was buried. However, there was a character. A character is probably the wrong word with, for it. But there was a man named Lawrence Steinkamp. I don't know. I think Lawrence might have passed away. This was a couple, maybe 10, 20 years ago when this article was written. And he was a retired printer that believed that he knew the answer. Steinkamp, 86 at the time, spent 15 years supervising a recreation program at the villa when the building was served, well, excuse me, served as the neighborhood youth center. He says, I was known as the king of the castle, he said. One day long ago, he met the daughter of a Quincy woman who claimed to have dated George Metz. The daughter then showed Steinkamp personally where the dog was buried. Steinkamp won't divulge the secret. My wife and I are the only two people in Quincy who know where the dog is buried, he said. Everybody thinks it was buried in the flower garden, but they are badly mistaken. They don't know where that dog's buried, and they're not going to find out. Not unless after I pass away, they come to heaven and see me. By the way, Steinkamp's source said Bingo was not buried with a studded collar after all. It wasn't diamonds. It was gold studded, he said. 
The legend oh, well, lives easier, on. Then. So uh, we can make. Okay, so can I? Can I? Are, is that it? Is that that's, our? Is that's that our the story? mystery. I think I know where you're going, and I'm there too. But go ahead. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is the you know this is 2023. This man. is a we got mystery. Absolutely. Yeah, we got. Well, I mean, let's get some lidar. Exactly. Let's or let's let's get some GPR. Ground penetrating, some ground penetrating a one radar. Pass of ground penetrating radar is going to show you if there's a dog. Well, and there. you said he had a. Did he have a casket? He you said, said it was an upholstered casket that was. It, that's super easy to find with the GPR. If it's now. true, yeah, absolutely. If it's true, that would totally show up on a, on the yeah, GPR. All right, guys. So we need to make some calls. <laughs> we'll be back in a little bit. <laughs> but you know, there's also a little. There's a few people that I mean, because you think about the, the the clues that have kind of surfaced through all these stories. Every you know, some people say it was a rose garden. Some people say it was the highest point on the grounds of the villa. The highest point on the grounds of the villa North? is the villa. Oh, it's not to the north. I thought the ground kind of rises towards the north. To there's a little area to the, I guess it'd be directly to the east where the staircase kind of. Uh, there's some stairs that on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. It's a little air, taller than anywhere else there. I mean, the villa is the tallest. Yeah, I almost wonder. You know, I'm not saying that's where Bingo's buried because who knows mm-hmm. what the landscape, how that's changed in the past. Though. Yeah, there's been so much work. There was a ball field there at one point. Now there's a parking mm-hmm. lot. God only knows what it yeah. looked like. But the, I mean, technically, the highest point, Chris, is the castle itself. So who's to say? I don't know what the the cellar looked like back then. Was it a dirt cellar? Do you do you do that? Do you? I don't think you do that. You know, I, I not I don't know. Especially if it's two hundred pound animal, I know, it's right? a big cat. That's a big casket, dude. It is. It's. I think they said four or five pallbearers. Yeah. yeah. So so that doesn't two fit two two hundred pound dog. It's huge. Yeah. 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 Most people. I mean, I don't know. I I think like, but then on the other side of the thing, I, and I I already know where this is gonna go. Is that. Yeah, it's easy. We could solve it today, yeah. but we really want no, to. No, you got, no, you got to really. have the legend. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And again, so. no trespassing, kids. Don't be getting crazy <laughs> with your shovels. <laughs> yeah, no shovels or, or well, evidently if it's gold, we can just take our metal detectors out there and, <laughs> and get to work. So, yeah. So, yeah, Chris, that's that's going to do it. I mean, the only, the only other mystery, I guess, which I had was really more just curiosity from my front of what happened to his siblings. Mm-hmm. On the on the in the grave in Woodland Cemetery, there's his grave. There, his nieces are buried there. His mother, mm-hmm. father, and multiple siblings share a kind of a larger gravestone. Each north, south, east, west face have the different uh, informations on it. So on one side is, uh, yeah, the west side contains the siblings, Chris, and it contains Hannah Melinda, who died at three months, Charles Frederick, who died at two years old, Anna Matilda, who died at five years. Emma Maria, who died at six years, and Henry Edward, that died at three years. Jeez. And they don't have the death dates, and this is in the city, like, mortuary information or the, the Woodland Lot uh, books, mm-hmm. logs. There's no death date, but I, I have their birth date, so I could you know do the calculations here roughly. Yeah. And every single one of them is in 1860. Ooh, in one year? It, so I, I, you know, I did some, like you asked earlier, what about, you know, outbreaks, cholera? Yeah. Most of the outbreaks that I could find, and again, I'm no expert, I can't claim to know everything, but I did have a few people. Actually, Amanda Van Ness, thank you. You actually helped me do some digging on this. We didn't have much luck, but I appreciate your efforts. Um, yeah, there didn't seem to be any big outbreaks of like typhoid fever or anything in the area. So I'm curious if there was some kind of accident. I don't know. Mm. But uh mm. So those are one, two, three, four. Those are five siblings that died right about the same time. 
Then they, they don't have they have the, just the year. They don't put the month yeah, on they, there. They, right? Well, they don't have their death date. Oh, they, don't they have, just have yeah. their birth date. That's right. No, that's you, right. no, they only have their age. I found their birth dates through other records. Oh, right. okay. But gotcha. on the uh, I guess it'd be on the let's see the north side has his mother as well as a brother, Emil. Now, Emil died in 1882 and was 20 years old. And at the time of death, he still lived with his mother. So I don't know if Emil had some kind of disability, if he just helped his mother since she was a widow. He died right. pretty young, too, at 20. I don't know what the story right. was. The interesting thing in, in uh, William, uh, his George's father's uh, will and testament and, and all that information, it really avoids talking about Emil as far as a beneficiary. So I'd, it's very interesting. I don't know. There's just not a lot of information on his, his uh, siblings, and I'm really curious to know what happened. So, Well, that's uh, – and I'm guessing that uh, you said 1860, so I'm guessing there's nothing in the records of any major accidents happening in the Quincy area in the 1860s. Yeah, you know, I couldn't I, – I tried doing – there's not much that comes up on their names yeah. or anything, so – don't know what happened. It, unfortunately, it might be lost to history. I, I do want to thank one more person. Like I yeah. said, me and the kids and the wife checked out the villa this past week and I uh, ran into uh, Cindy Bailey, who was volunteering at the time. Cindy is a listener, actually, to Wild Quincy. We had oh. a nice conversation. And uh, she provided me with some additional information. So she was a lovely host to us at the villa. Just want to give her a shout out. Uh, it was great cool. talking to you, Cindy. Yeah. And uh, that's going to, I think, put a close to Georgia Metz. It's a lot of information, and, and we'll have more. It sounds like we'll be talking about some crazy events that happen. I have we're, some questions, but I'm going to hold off to yeah, Patreon. We're going to talk. We're going to talk about Catherine's crazy run-in at the restaurant. Yeah. Poison. Yeah. That, that yeah. alone is Thank worth you. its price of Patreon. <laughs> there you go. So we'll be talking about that coming up uh, next week on the Patreon episode. But that is a look at the legendary George Metz. We'll have more after this on Wild Quincy. <laughs> car has only been driven by a little old lady on Sundays to church. $800 is my top bid. That's it. I'll give you $2,500, Father. Uh, $3,000. They're playing dealer's choice. The used car trading game. Buy low, sell high. Anything goes, as long as you don't get caught. I'd like to look under the hood, Father. Why would he want to do a thing like that? A dealer's choice from Parker Brothers. The game that makes everyone a used car dealer. So you got Monopoly, you got Scrabble, you got uh, the Game of Life. Uh, did you have Dealer's Choice, Travis? I, I kept waiting. I thought this was a parody. I was just waiting for the joke. <laughs> I'm like, no, this is real. It is. You? <laughs> do you think, I mean, I don't have any disrespect of anybody working in the used cars, okay? Yeah. It's not work I would want to do and I'd skill. suck at it. Yeah. But you, sometimes it's a bad stigma, right? Used yeah. car salesman. But apparently, when did that start? Because it seems like this was like a pretty chivalrous title if there's a board game dedicated to it, right? Yeah. So this is a 1972 commercial. Is that right? 1972. So it, yeah. Some, for the 70s. I went and did some searching, and um, it actually came across this uh, autoweek.com article. It says, Dealer's Choice, a wonderfully sleazy 1972 <laughs> car dealing board game. <laughs> I would, I honestly, I wouldn't mind playing this, Chris. It'd be interesting. So you get your own like uh, b- blue book, okay? Yeah, and you okay. have what the values of these vehicles are, 
from your perspective and you have to try to negotiate with the fellow people to try making more or gaining from the other people so the per- i think the ultimate objective to this game is to be the one that comes away with the most profit okay that makes sense yeah. So you play? So, are you playing this with like your five year olds? I mean, this seems like know. a horrible game for kids. Well, it was funny if you listen to the commercial. The it's like a uh, uh, like a, a f- I don't know fourteen or sixteen year old boy <laughs> playing with grandma and grandpa. <laughs> okay, so okay. Um, it, it's kind of funny, uh, but uh, anyway, I thought this was amazing. I thought I was with you. I came across this. I was looking for commercials. Uh, a lot of times YouTube ends up being like, like searching, just like, Oh, go hear some random seventies right. commercials. So I started right. li- watching them just to see if I can find things like, well, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Um, and I came across this. And so I'm like, well, that's can't be real. And I was like, Oh my God, it is <laughs> like, so I was just crazy. like you. Um, so yeah. Crazy. So, uh, 1972 game by Parker brothers. It's called dealer's choice. Uh, you could have anything from, um, a junker, like, a vehicle that fell off a truck uh, to on this sheet they were showing is looks like the most valuable one might be. Um, wow. They have a closed circuit TV on here for $10,000, uh, a, a 24 karat gold, $11,000. Um, I heard there was a Jaguar on here somewhere. Oh my. Um, but so, so yes, yeah, so there's some oh, $11,000 for beer on tap. <laughs> I love it. I can just see this like, okay, Johnny, the local mob boss tra- is trying to launder money. <laughs> do you break him a deal on the six conversion vans or, yeah. <laughs> or do you risk do you, your life, Johnny? Do you get a leg broken? <laughs> do you sleep with the fishies tonight, Johnny? It's your call, Johnny. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, I, uh, this game you can find, there's some retro oh, websites boy. where you can get retro board games oh, and you my. can buy this game. Interesting, um, Chris. Yeah, so so yeah, so there you go. <laughs> Again, totally random. I've never heard it before. If you guys have heard about Dealer's Choice, let us know in the comments. Let us know what you Love think. It. Give us a message. Uh, let us know. So there you go. Uh, Dealer's Choice by Parker Brothers. Uh, do we want to head to the Golden Pipes. Let's let's hear what they had to say. And now it's time for words of wisdom from Adams County. All right, Travis, time for the wit, the wisdom, the know-how of our forefathers and foremothers. This this segment is that $5 bill in my pocket after it went through the laundry, Chris, especially on these big research episodes. I'm like thinking, oh, we're debts is it. The episode's over. And then it's like a fun little surprise when you say the golden (laughs) pipe. So I'm like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, here we go. Oh, my gosh. I didn't realize I had this $5 bill. Awesome. Let's see it. Unfold that $5 bill for me, Chris. Yeah. So so I did a little, I, I, I got a little preface. When we talked leading up to this, you know, we always give our kind of our cues of what the episode is going to be about. You talked about some sailing and you talked sure, about, of course, sure. he was a traveler. So so I went and did some searching and I found some things that relate to it. Uh, so we have two sections that I base this off of, a few that we're going to do tonight. Uh, journeys is a section. It's only one page, Don't so there's not believing. a whole lot to choose from. And then we have a couple to wrap it up that are sailing related. Okay. I'm sail away. All right, so here we go. First one on journey is 8352. If at the beginning of a trip on water, you accidentally drop your handkerchief into the water, let it float away, and you will have good luck. Trying to retrieve that handkerchief will cause you bad luck. So okay. always carry two handkerchiefs is what it sounds yeah. like. <laughs> and don't go for it. Uh, next one down the list. I like this one too. 8353. Whenever I take a trip, and this is in quotes, uh, whenever I take a trip, I always take a small sack of salt in my suitcase so I will have a safe journey. Not only that, but sometimes you, you maybe you get some French fries that aren't quite <laughs> you salty. You need enough. some salt. Yeah. Uh, 8360. It's unlucky to start your journey on Friday. 
Okay. okay. So hopefully George never did trips on starting on Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one here, just two down, need 362. Start a journey on Friday and you will never return. Oh, my. Yeah, ominous. That yeah, puts an exclamation dark. point on that previous one, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, this one I just found funny uh, and weird. Uh, eighty-three, eighty-three. Keep spitting over your left shoulder while retracing your steps home, and you will not be unlucky. Okay. <laughs> so psst, you know, keep that, that spit, in mind. Keep that in spit mind. over that left shoulder. And don't get any on your on your jacket. But uh, I, you know, I always like to to wrap things up with an interesting one, and this one caught my attention. This is in the sailor department, so this is thirty two twenty three. Since we know George was a sailor, uh, this one says, "Seeing a cross eyed sailor over your left shoulder aboard a ship is unlucky." Words of wisdom from Adams County. That's really specific. <laughs> it sounds like maybe there was a personal experience that made it, it into the local like, lore. Right? Oh, don't, don't mind Shifty darn. back there. He's a real sweetheart, but don't leave your valuables out. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Which eye am I supposed to look at? Um, <laughs> None of them. Never look him in the eyes. Not the good one or the bad one. They're both bad. I can't look at his peg leg. I got, can't look at his eyes. He got devil eyes, son. <laughs> what am I supposed to look at? You look at the floor. <laughs> look at his forehead. <laughs> look Always at his, look at his forehead. Look at the sky above. <laughs> oh my gosh, you gotta love it. There was a couple more on there. You know, the one I really liked is the they had the red morning, the red in the morning. So real quick, red in the morning, sailor take warning. Red at night, sailors delight. Have you heard that one? I have. I one. was gonna try and yeah. pull that one as a reference, but yeah. I couldn't remember how it went. So yeah, thank you. That's it. So I always forget how what the order is of that. So uh, there you go. There's our folklore of Adams County. Kind of kind of switch things up, getting something a little bit related to uh, George Metz there, Travis. Before we uh, started this third segment uh, for this episode, you said, "Hey, I got to write these down." Yeah. Uh, we're talking about the question today, and so uh, let me start with this um this actually is one of those funny things where you have a basis of what you know you're going to talk about and then you're like all right how am i going to get to that and so then you start doing research and then you come across something weird and when uh well let me let me tell you where that is when we get done with this so here's the question of the day uh there are some big cemeteries in quincy which one's the biggest in uh, in accordance to actual acreage okay is it calvary cemetery Greenmount cemetery quincy memorial park or woodland cemetery and as mentioned if you want to get a little extra credit you can put them in order from least to most but uh travis let's just take your number one who has the most acreage out of the four cemeteries listed Hold on. I, I'm doing some nope. last minute shifting doing, here. Doing some sh- oh man, never second well, you guess said, yourself. You said acreage though. Yeah, it is acreage. You're talking an acreage and not bodies in the grave, right? Yeah. So, and let me preface how I did this, okay? Because they don't technically tell you how many acres on their websites, okay? So I went on Google. Whatever the Google map suggested was their was the layout of that cemetery. I measured it and got the got the actual acreage of that cemetery. Okay, you know what? You know how I'm. What I'm using to kind of guess this, Chris. Yeah, I am trying in my mind to drive through them all. I've driven through them all Ooh. multiple times. Okay, and I'm trying to think which one feels like it has the most road. Mm. Well, I think that one's an easy answer to be honest with you, but I don't know if you're going off that. Well, let's see what you got. I mean, the worst case you can miss is you can get it wrong. All right. <laughs> I'm gonna. Go for I'll give you the one I think is the biggest first. <laughs> the biggest, yeah. Give and me then, the biggest. Okay. I I had to switch a couple of times. Okay. I'm gonna say Green Mountain is biggest. And you would be right. Oh yes. 
So does that count? Finally, is that a yeah, win? Yeah, that was that was the win. We're gonna give that so this, win. Is this, this was extra, extra credit. credit. Is this is extra. Yeah, credit? this was a, yeah extra credit. So yes, Green Mountain Cemetery <sighs> okay. is number one, yes, coming in at a whopping fifty three. 53 acres uh i did double check and so um the reason why this came up was because i was looking at cemetery stuff and i came across green mount's website and they said they were one of the largest cemeteries in the tri-state area i went well that doesn't seem right seems like woodland would be bigger you know so they, they can't be the bigger than that but sure enough it is it's the biggest in quincy so travis i said the extra credit least to most uh, or we can go either way. It doesn't matter. You know what number one is. So what do you think your your second biggest one is? Calvary. Calvary would not be the second most. Oh, uh, what is the second? Is it Woodland? It is Woodland. Oh, uh, I just meant, yep. uh, yeah, I was confused. Yep. All right. So what's number three? Number three is your Calvary. Okay. And then Quincy, Quincy Memorial that, tops yeah. out. I yeah, I had I, Calvary and Woodland was switched. I should have had that change. Yeah, I would have had that so so fifty three yeah. acres for Green Mount, forty for Woodland, twenty six for Calvary, and Quincy Memorial has twenty one acres. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, Woodland's deceptive. It feels yes when you look at the topography. I think you're cutting down on mm-hmm. usable space. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it, it seems bigger. I think just of all the different changes in height I'm, the one thing i'm curious of and i'm not sure if i'm ever going to know the answer to this question maybe we will someday is which one has more people buried in it that would I think be it's woodland i think it is too yeah but when you said acreage you threw me for a loop there yeah, yeah. <laughs> well we've had a question in the past i think about which one has yeah. the most or i think yeah. we talked specifically about woodland and woodland okay. has like sixty thousand people buried yeah that's a good there. question man that was a so, fun one that was a fun yeah, one yeah so of course oh, we're uh always preface the next episode travis and this one would evidently have to do with cemeteries, but not necessarily these cemeteries. Ooh, what are we talking about? I don't know. You tell me. You're the one coming. <laughs> no. <laughs> Lost cemeteries? Are we talking about cemeteries that aren't on the list that we know about? That's the plan. We're. I think we're going to try and figure out how many like abandoned old-time cemeteries that are maybe kind of in the... Maybe have been abandoned or on the way out. You know, just a time has taken its toll on it. And we're going to see. I know there's quite a few around the area. So we're going to take yeah. a look. And if you happen to know of a couple, let us know. We'd love to hear what you have to say. You can email us at wildquincy at gmail.com. You can also give us a shout on the uh, listener line or a text as well. 612-666-9453. That's 612-666-WILD. Like I said, you can hit us up on the socials, too. We'd love to hear what you guys have to say and would enjoy any input you have on the topic. Well, and I know uh, maybe we might talk about one of these lost cemeteries in Quincy holding uh, the remains of a very important person in a certain religion. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We so talk we'll that. talk about that as well. So yeah, it'd be a fun episode. We'll have that coming up for you in two weeks. Our Patreon episode coming at you next week. But Travis, before we wrap things up, are we missing anything? I hope you, everybody had a great holiday season, uh, whatever holiday you celebrate. Hope it was a good one. You had some uh, rest and relaxation with family. You didn't kill each other. <laughs> yeah, that's always the goal, right? <laughs> well, for Travis Hoffman, I'm Chris Ketters. You've been listening to Wild Quincy. We'll catch you guys next time. Take care, everybody. Wild Quincy is released every other Tuesday and is produced by Chris Ketters and Travis Hoffman. Sound designed by Downdraft Sound and Editing and music by Travis Hoffman Music. I'm Bo Beecraft. And thanks for listening to Wild Quincy. Wild Quincy.